This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon. Hello, 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 everyone. My name is Adam Sokolich, also known as the best of live audio. I'm so excited to be here with you folks. This is going to be such a great conversation with, of course, Liv, who just joined us on stage. Liv, how are you? I'm great. Have I turned my mic on? Yes, you sound perfectly (laughs) clear, Liv. It's so good to talk with you. And by the way, is this your first Twitter Spaces or have you been on here before? Uh, Yes, this is my first Twitter Spaces. Um, yeah, I had to download the app especially because I uh, I don't actually use the Twitter app because otherwise I use Twitter too much. <laughs> uh, of course. Oh, I hear you. A lot of us do. And I'm sure we'll dive into that in just a little bit, Liv. But this is so fantastic. I love talking with fascinating thinkers and doers. I've been doing it for over two years now on all the social media platforms. And I love diving in with everyone from TED speakers to top CEOs, uh, researchers, professors, the list goes on. And today, Liv, I'm just so excited to talk with you because because there's so many fascinating things to talk about. I mean, for folks, if you're just joining, uh, if you know Liv, fantastic. If you don't, give her a follow. She knows so much about everything, you know, being a world champion poker player to, of course, being an astrophysicist, knowing so much about space and so much more. The work that you're doing around the world is truly, truly amazing. So I'd love to dive in with you. Before we do that, though, Liv, where in the world are you right now? Are you in, you know, in Texas? Are you in the UK? Where are you? Uh, I'm in the US right now. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I know you've been traveling. It sounds like you did some European vacationing as well. Um, But we're going to start diving in almost immediately. So, Liv, I know recently... There, you know, we're going to start with space, right? And I know just recently okay. there's NASA, right? There's the new Webb telescope out there. And there's so much more that you can dive into because I believe that this was really, really fascinating for you, right? What's one thing about the Webb telescope and about space that you're just fascinated by with just the new research and the new imagery that just came out within the last couple of weeks? Um, I mean, the, where to begin with that? I mean, it's... You know, I, I, I feel like maybe our purpose here, if we have a purpose in the universe, um, it is to understand it, right? It's to gather information um, that we can then use to be better informed about what this whole thing is all about. And arguably, there is no greater tool than that than a telescope. Um, because not only does a telescope let you see very far away, but it also lets you see very far in the past, because once you start getting out in these, you know, vast distances, um, because there's a universal speed limit, the speed of light, um, the further away you look, the further back in time you're looking. Um, and uh, before the Webb telescope, we had the Hubble telescope, which was already just a groundbreaking, um, you know, because the thing with telescopes is usually you're they're, they're bound to Earth, right? And so you're looking through the atmosphere, even if you stick it on top of a mountain, 
there's still a, a bunch of atmosphere and water vapor and so on in the way that will like mess up your 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 image and reduce the amount of light that your uh, that, that is being received. Um, but if you can put a telescope out into space, now it's like a game changer because there's no atmosphere in the way. Um, there's no sort of interference uh, that you, that you would get on Earth, um, and so that's what the Hubble did, and that enables us to see the you know that iconic image of the Hubble Deep Field, um, which is where they like put you know they pointed it at this tiny patch of space, expecting it looks like empty space, and then it revealed just this like seemingly endless plethora of galaxies, um, you know billions and billions of years in the past and billions and billions of years away, um, and the web is just like a big old upgrade on that it's a new telescope new fancy um technology um i i can't actually remember off the top of my head how much like greater the resolution is um for the web compared to the hubble but it's like i think it's an order of magnitude or maybe more um and so this is going to enable us to like really peer as close back to the big bang um as we've ever done before um, and and as you as probably everybody saw, they recently released a f the first batch of images um, of 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 a range of things. And and I wrote a, t a Twitter thread, um, sort of putting those the the different images that they released in order of distance. So starting sort of closest to us, um, I think they had a, a oh yeah that's right they they managed to pick up a, um, a sort of. Spe uh, a spectral analysis of an exoplanet. So usually, you know, when we look at planets, we're looking at the planets within our own, within our own solar system. Um, but this enabled us to actually point um, the telescope at an exoplanet, I think around a thousand light years away, um, and detect what its atmosphere contains, and it contains water vapor. So we now know with very high degree of confidence that there are other planets out there that contain water, um, which obviously has huge implications for the potential for life. Um, and, and then, and, 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 and then the images went in sort of further, you know, order of distance all the way out to um, a, a sort of a fairly deep field image of, I think around 4.6 billion light years away. Um, so considering the universe is only 13.7 billion uh, years old, uh, you know, you're really looking back in time um, and seeing some seeing some fancy stuff. So this, I mean, this is mind blowing for me and probably for many folks in the audience, right? Now you're an astrophysicist, right? And at the same time, I'd have to imagine the folks in the space industry, is this mind blowing technology for them as well? And what do you think is the impact? Where do you think researchers and governments and all that are going to be using this? What can we learn from it to help humanity in the near future? Well, first of all, I should say I'm not I'm not an astrophysicist um, and I never worked as one. I, I only studied astrophysics up to, uh, you know, I did an undergrad degree in it Got and it. I intended to become one, but then poker came along. Got it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we'll talk about more about that in a bit. Yeah. Yes. But keep going. Um, so, you know, my, my, my knowledge, you know, there's a cap on my knowledge here. Um, but in terms of like the the usefulness of this information, well, you know, we we don't know yet. That's the thing. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of unknown unknowns. Um, all we know is that there's a lot of information out there that we don't have yet. Um, and there's even information that we don't know that is accessible, that building greater, you know, more powerful telescopes or like um, colliders, in, you know, telescopes look at the very large and very far. Colliders look at the very small and the very, you know, the very close. Mm -hmm. um, and the point is, is that unless we build and, uh, you know, build these these incredible sort of uh, information gathering technologies, then we're not going to know 
what information there is that we don't have. Um, you know, well, we, A, we're going to get information we, we know that we need to get, um, and B, we will uncover presumably more, you know, greater depths of information um, to further investigate. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of use, use, usefulness, I mean, we will be able to understand much more about the origins of our universe. You know, it's the Big Bang, we have a ton of evidence that, the universe it started very very small and very hot but we still don't understand exactly the processes that went on in those very very you know early the first few hundred thousand years like we've got a good idea but we need it's all still mostly theorized we need we need hard evidence of that Mm -hmm. and um and that's you know what the applications of that can be you know i'm again i'm limited by my 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 own knowledge here um but there will be there will be a lot of uses for that Mm -hmm. um but more but the, the like the big the big picture cosmology stuff is perhaps less sort of uh, immediately applicable. Mm-hmm. Um, but what will be is, for example, the spectral analysis of of nearby planets, um, because you know we're trying to do the ca- you know the the calculus on whether it's worth us sending probes out into space. Uh, you know, all kinds of um, space exploration technology kind of hinges on a little bit of what we think is out there. If we find evidence of alien civilizations, for example. Well, now that raises kind of almost like sociological uh, implications. Maybe we, you know, should we or shouldn't we send it, uh, signals out there to them? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and what are your you know, there's, there's, what are your thoughts on both of those? Should we be sending pro- probes out there? Should we be sending signals out there? Just in your opinion. Mm-hmm. So I lie, you know, with I, I have. Um, a sort of strong opinion loosely held, I guess is the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect, my money is on, let's put it this way, if I had to bet, I bet, I would bet money that we are very likely the only advanced technological uh, civilization in our, certainly in our nearby area of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And if not, probably the, the, quite likely the whole Milky Way, because there's a lot of evidence to suggest that we have, we are the first. Now that doesn't mean that other life can't, you know, isn't already developing. Um, but given that we don't, you know, we've been now looking pretty hard for quite a long time. Um, and of course, we're not just looking, you know, in our snapshot of time, we're also looking back in time. Um, and we still haven't seen any, you know, Dyson spheres or any ev- any evidence of other civilizations sending signals out to us. Um, it seems like things are pretty quiet out there. So, um, and I actually wrote an, an article on... Um, Sort of this this new paper that came out by a, an organization that I love called Future of Humanity Institute, who are trying to answer these sort of big picture questions. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you Google um, dissolving the Fermi paradox, uh, you'll you'll find that article. Um, and, and by name, you can you can either read the paper itself or my sort of interpretation of the paper uh, on the article, whatever you fancy. Yeah. Um, and basically, they through some fairly advanced statistical methods tried their best to analyze based upon the evidence that we have um the likelihood that there is another intelligent civilization out there in our galaxy and it came to roughly about about a 50 50 chance um so the point is is that you would expect given the billions and billions of stars in our galaxy there should be you know even if life is only a a a one in a thousand there should still be tens of thousands of civilizations out there Mm -hmm. like making tons of it should be really loud and noisy but it but it's not and so that absence of evidence is some, you know, it's kind of evidence in of itself that things are quiet out there. So my, well, I mean, now you're getting like really sort of almost uh, philosophical and, and <laughs> theological. Um, but 
my gut says that we are more special than we realize um in terms of either we got very lucky to sort of make it through whatever great filters there are that you know barriers that stop life from um getting you know developing and becoming multiplanetary or interstellar mm-hmm. um and hopefully those barriers are behind us and not in front of us because obviously things are starting to look a bit sketchy in terms of the the exponential technologies that we are developing here on earth mm-hmm. um uh which you know incredibly powerful technologies like the technologies with the power of gods you know in order to like extinguish life and yet we don't have the wisdom of gods to wield it mm-hmm. certainly not yet um so you know there there's there's perhaps r- real reasons why why life you know we're not seeing civilizations uh, expand, expanding everywhere across across the um the universe that so we need to then factor in for ourselves you know if 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 we find if we if we actually go out for example and find um some kind of fairly advanced life that's not quite technological yet you know like some some mammals or mammal mammalian type animals um on another planet um that independently arose from us well that's very big that would be a very big signifier that life is actually quite easy to 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 emerge and evolve but for some reason that life isn't able to get beyond you know it, it become beyond a certain level of technology and advancement and and spread throughout the universe mm. um and so that would be very bad very very bad news for us because it means that we're likely coming near a technological limit uh of where you know uh, civilizations then extinguish and you know uh, annihilate themselves so, so let me ask yeah, you this though. i'm curious because you're bringing up technology it's one a topic i'd love to dive into and there's obviously amazing things in the world out there at the moment now you know, for instance, recently I interviewed uh, the leader of Planet, Planet.com, which is a... Will Marshall? Uh, so <laughs> this was with Kevin Wheel. So he's the oh, president. Okay. So yes, I, w- I would love Will, Will as well. And he gave a, an amazing TED talk. Um, but the, their technology is fantastic. They have 200 satellites going around the world. We're studying data coming back at the Earth. Now you can also think externally or outward facing, right? And you think of, sure, things like Elon Musk and uh, Mars and, of course, with pla- uh, not with plants, uh, with rockets and all of these other things as well. We just talked about telescopes. What's a, what's technology, one or two, that's just most fascinating to you at the moment and why? Mm. Well, so there's technologies that I'm... Um excited about in terms of their ability to help us so yeah planet uh they're they're essentially planetary surveillance technology is i think very exciting because it enables us to witness things like deforestation or environmental degradation or countries building sketchy stuff that they shouldn't be (laughs) um which uh, you know, and and because it's then open sourced, it's not being done for you know keeping it secretive. It, it will actually um, because part of the problem, you know, for example, n- nuclear arms races, those are done because the the the, com- the countries don't trust each other, and they're not able to. You know, they say you know one will say we're not building scary hypersonic re- weapons, and then but then because they can't verify that the other one isn't doing it, they both are then incentivized to do it anyway just in case mm-hmm. you know in this kind of like race to the bottom arms race um so as far as i can tell if if there is a way to like actually open source the information for everyone on earth to see you know everyone can check in and say well are they actually doing it are there signs of this and so on and so forth um that at least will take some of that sort of pressure off 
this gradient of developing the, 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 the worst, most dangerous technologies they can as a form of sort of self-defense. Mm. Um, so I think that is a very exciting application of that. And then, again, more specifically, if everyone can see whether, you know, the, the rate with which the Amazon rainforest is being depleted or the Congo uh, rainforest and so on, we can more um, efficiently allocate our resources, you know, our political, uh, our political efforts on the places where things, you know, where, where, where it's needed the most. Um, so that's an example of something very exciting. Um, and then things like, um, how about nuclear, AI. How about nuclear yeah, energy as well? I thought you recently commented on nuclear yeah. energy. Um, so, well, so nuclear is, um, to me, nuclear is exciting because it's, well, it's, it's a stopgap that people don't realize quite how essential it is. You know, obviously, climate change is is not going away and it seems to be getting worse our rate of emissions is not slowing down in the slightest and you know i am all for as many renewables as we can uh, use you know if we can build this theorized you know t tile this the so uh, the sahara with with solar panels to power the world fantastic let's do it but that ain't happening anytime soon um and so in the meantime we need some kind of stopgap um, and we already have that technology, a, 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 you know, basically a, a zero carbon technology uh, to, to generate electricity, and that is nuclear power. Um, and I think part of the reason why I'm so gung-ho on it right now is because there are a lot of governments making really silly, dumb mistakes, such as turning off perfectly good, perfectly safe operating um, nuclear plants because they promised their, their misinformed um, voter bases many decades ago that oh yeah we're going to phase it out and switch to renewables and so there's this kind of like inertia that they that they they promised they would do something but now with like the the russia the russia ukraine conflict and so on you know in 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 europe they're completely they're becoming increasingly reliant on russian gas to keep the lights on mm -hmm. um and because now that is being restricted their their option is and then meanwhile, Germany is turning off their, their their nuclear plants just because they said they would. But it's like, why are you doing this? If you turn them off, you don't have the renewables to replace it right now. So you're going to have to turn on coal, which is far more deadly, um, not only in terms of obviously emissions for climate change, you know, uh, carbon emissions, but actually for literally the people living there. Like one of the main cons concerns people always say about nuclear power is like, oh, well, you know, if there's a leak or something that might hurt the people nearby. Meanwhile, coal we know that anyone living near a coal plant there is it, it literally shaves years off their life in terms of breathing in these microparticles um and i, I can't remember the, the stats but it's something like air pollution kills i think around six million people a year um needlessly um and so it's one of the most like directly known forms of um injury to people through energy production is, is microparticles from carbon intensive uh, energy production of which coal is the worst one so it's absolutely insane to be turning off already existing perfectly good nuclear power plants um be just because you know some few pe some people from the 1970s watched too many uh, you know episodes of the simpsons um <laughs> which wrongly painted nuclear power as some kind of bad guy when it really isn't yeah um so it's it's this kind of like and that's why it frustrates me. It's this like, it's this puritanical environmentalism where it's like, oh, everything has to be renewables or bust. And it's like there are interim things uh, where you know, like, it, it's it's a bit of a hit. It, 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 some people say nuclear is a renewable, some don't. Um, 
I think it's perhaps the wrong word to use. The point is it's clean. It is a very, very clean technology compared to many others. Um, and I get, by the way, I'm getting all my, most of my information from my friend Isabel Bomika, who is an incredible, uh, she's, she's literally like a nuclear power influencer, she calls herself, because she, she was like, no one is making, talking to the, to the young generation about how important this technology is. Um, and she's in the audience. I want to give a shout out to her on this, because she's the one who's kind of, uh, Got, got me thinking about this issue this much. Right, well, and Isabel, I know you're in the audience listening right now. So if you are interested to join, I'll send you a request, but you're also more than welcome anytime. So you can push that mic button bottom left. And folks in the audience, if you've just joined, we're talking with Liv Bowery. We're talking everything just fantastic and fascinating in the science space and beyond. We'll get to all those other topics in just a little bit. So Liv, let's take a step back for a moment, right? Because you have such an amazing story. Where did this all begin, right? What I mean by that is, what? How did you fall in love with science? When did that happen? Kind of give us that story of how you fell in love with science. Um, I mean, I there's no like immediate start point, but I think some of my earliest memories were lying outside under the stars with my mum when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I always used to, you know, I grew up in England um, and. Uh, having a night that was sufficiently warm enough where you could just sleep out without a tent was very rare. So I'd be really excited when it was a warm night and my mom'd be like, do you want to sleep out under the stars? Yes. And we would drag a mattress out into the garden and just like li lie there and look at the stars until we fell asleep. Um, and we did that from a very young age. And, you know, my mom had no background in, you know, formal background in science, but she just, she was always so fascinated by the natural world um, you know, whether it was just the plants and nature around around us or, you know, the, the universe beyond. And I, so I think I, I either inherited that or she instilled that in me. Um, and I just always, I was always very interested in the most, like, big picture abstract questions. Um, I just remember one that I could never, I just I could never get out of my head as soon as I th thought about it was, like, what's outside the universe? Like, what does outside you know, I, I, was, I, wanted, I was like, why can't I picture beyond three dimensions? Mm -hmm. I remember being fundamentally irritated that I couldn't <laughs> visualize beyond three dimensions spatially in my head. And I was, like, I was like, this seems silly and arbitrary. Why three? It's such a small number. Like, ah. and, and, and this like <laughs> deep, like almost obsessiveness with, with like abstract concepts I had from a very, very young age. And so... I think, you know, going and studying astrophysics was like a natural progression of that. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I need to know. Um, and I wasn't even like, especially like maths kind of came somewhat easily to me up to the age of 13 or 14. But then I actually remember found it quite difficult for a little while. So it wasn't like I was like insanely naturally talented at maths or anything. But mm. it just, my... I think it was like a form, it was really just like pathological curiosity was so strong <laughs> that I, I just like had to keep chugging away at it in order to understand. Um, so yeah, that, that got me into astrophysics. Well, I, I love this because, you know, I have a six-year-old daughter and she loves, like you just said, looking up at the stars and she has amazing questions. Some of these questions I have no clue how to answer, but I of course try my best. But she has this curiosity to dive into so many different topics, not just space. And that's what I love about you as well, Liv, is that you do so many different things. And I'd, I'd love to hear, like, we, we've talked about space, we've talked about technology, we talked about your how you kind of fell in love with science. And then there's this shift into the game world, the poker world. What's that story? How did that come about for you? Um, so I just graduated. Um, I, I 
had already started to suspect that a, a career in pure academia wasn't for me because I remember, you know, w- working with some postgrads or uh, you know, uh, PhD students, um, you know, when I was writing my final dissertation and <laughs> thinking like how they didn't seem like they were having much fun. <laughs> um, and I was naturally quite an extroverted person, particularly back then. Um, I was really into playing guitar um, and I was very into my heavy metal and I wanted to, I was like flirting with the idea of becoming a, a full-time like rock star. <laughs> and I was like, there, there seems like there's a personality um, conflict here perhaps with going into academia. And so I decided to take a year off and soon into that gap year, uh, I I started applying for TV game shows because I had always just loved, I was, I'd always been very, very competitive and it seemed like, I, I know I was always one of those people who was shouting at the TV, like, I can't believe how, come on, the answer's so obvious. I was like, okay, I must be able to win some money on some of these. So um, I applied for a few, and one of the first ones I um, was successful on was a, um, it was actually a reality show that was looking for five beginners um, to teach them how to play poker. Um, and so I, 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 got, I got on that, and I didn't actually end up winning the money. Um, on that one uh, because I played really badly but I completely fell in love with with poker so much Um, it just like ticked all the boxes for a game for me because it was you know not only is it extraordinarily competitive but there's so many different skills that it requires um, from the sort of maths and statistics side of things to the sort of psychology that you know you have to mentally model people and you have to outwit them um, and there's a lot of, you know, that you can talk and, and put, you know, try and unsettle people through words. Um, and you also have to sort of build up your own emotional defenses against other people trying to like get into your mind. Um, so it, it just like felt like it pull, draw, drew upon a lot of Jedi skills mm. that I that I really enjoyed. Um, and then on top of that, I, you know, I was really hungry to go out and explore the world. And there's, there's like an international tour that you can go on and join. Um, you know, kind of like tennis players will go to Wimbledon and then the US Open and so on. There are regular stops on the international poker circuit. And I was like, wow, if I can get good enough, I can go and play these and I'll get to see the world. I just, I, I was really in sort of search space at the time. You know, I was in my early 20s. I wanted to meet as many people as I could and learn, uh, you know, and understand how the world works as much as possible. And poker seemed like a really great way of doing that because it attracts so many different types of people. You know, and, and I got to, during that time, I got to play against everything, everyone from, you know, uh, bank tellers to movie stars to business leaders to, you know, you name it. Um, people from all sort of walks of life um, and personality types. So it was just, it was really, it just, it felt like brimming with opportunity, basically. Who was one of your favorite people to play against or, or top two or three people that you just really enjoyed playing with the whole time, whether you won or lost? Um... I like playing against. It's it's difficult because I think the people I like playing against because I'm so competitive. I like I, I you know I want to play against people who I have a, at least a decent chance of winning against. Well, that's the beauty of poker. Technically, you know, you can even a complete beginner can beat the world the, the world's best over a very short sample size mm-hmm. um, because there's there's an element of chance. Um, I mean, I, I guess I should give a shout out to the people who just first instilled the love of the game in me. Um, and those three people were the three pros who were on that TV show, um, two of whom I still know today. Uh, so they were um, Devilfish, who was this like, um, sadly he's no longer with us, but he uh, he was um, a sort of 
a larger than life character in on the UK scene. Um, you know, came from he used to be a safe cracker, so from a real sort of uh, very poor working class background on the on the on the edges of crime, or actually in the in crime, <laughs> you know, but but like had a heart of gold as well. So um, you know, he was one of the pros, and then there was um, Annie Duke, who uh, mm. she was you know one of the few women in poker at the time, um, and she had a background in. Uh, statistics and and psychology i believe but like very academic very very like hyper smart mm-hmm. um and then phil helmuth who um is the most successful world series p- player of all time um the guy is just like a living legend um and just this larger than life character uh who who, who like really cracked the becoming a rock star thing so just like between the three of them, I was like, wow, like that you're all so different. And yet you've all find you're, there's something beautiful in this game that brings you all together. And so I think it was the three of them combined that really just sort of instilled this sense of awe and made, and made me realize that, that it's there's a career that could be made out of this. Um, yeah. So I love this because, you know, I have a background in psychology. My wife has a background in statistics. So you're already bringing up these words and I love poker as well. And there's so many different dimensions of it. I feel like you mentioned it before. It's like, you know, there's the attacking aspect of this and it's the way that you can use your words and of course the gameplay as well. However, you do need to be on the defensive. So I love how you describe that. Help people understand the science of poker and the science of games as well. You've given uh-huh. an amazing TED talk. So folks go check that out. Uh, I believe it's called Three Lessons in Decision-Making from a Poker Champion. It has over 3.6 million views. I love talking with TED speakers as well. So help folks understand what is the science of poker? What are the Uh, things that, you know, and for folks in the audience who probably aren't poker champions as well, what should be they aware of? What are some tips that you would recommend as well? So I think what's interesting to talk about is how poker has changed since I first learned to play. You know, I first learned to play in 2005 and I started playing seriously, you know, in this, the next few years after that. And back then, the game was extremely, sorry, am I still live? Because yep. my phone shot up. Okay, good. Good. Um, back then, no one really knew, so the best players in the world were kind of more old school, they were older and they were people who had spent a lot of times just a lot of their life in casinos hustling you know so they they were very street smart uh, it was kind of like a game of wits you know they would just like have feelings of like what the other person was doing and and then react accordingly but often if you even ask them like well why did you make that decision they couldn't break it down it was a very sort of intuitive thing it was they were just like really like playing off their wits and intuitions um and that's because no one really understood the mechanics of the game properly. Um, and in terms of the types of skills that people were using, it was all like the sort of more uh, right brain stuff, as people call it, you know, like system one in- intuitive stuff. So, you know, it, vibes, basically. It was a game of vibes. Um, mm-hmm. And as, uh, as like online poker became more, more popular and therefore you could like, people were able to get much more data, playing data and then also software came along where you could upload all your hand histories into and then analyze that data it created a kind of scientific revolution um, because there was this data that you could analyze and this started shifting it basically kind of like lifted the veil on on the mechanics of the game itself because really what it is it's a game of math um, and specifically a branch of math called game theory 
Um, and it turns out that there are these um, mathematically optimal solutions to different situations within the game. Um, it's called like game theory optimal solutions. Uh, so a good analogy is like if, if you, are, you and I are playing rock, paper, scissors, um, and you don't know anything about me, how, how I would play, what's your, what, would, what would you do um, as, as, a, as the best strategy against me? Mm. Putting you to the test. Ooh, I like this. And I, I play this with my sister all the time. Um, I'd probably, you know, I, I'd wonder if it's one game or if it's best two to three or something like that. I'd probably try to read off of them off of their first reaction, but maybe scientifically. Well, no, you don't know anything about me. Oh. So the very first game um, you play. You I would just no imagine they throw scissors most often, right? And so therefore I'd want to throw a rock. You know, that'd just be my my stupid okay. simplistic thought process well, tell us what the answer is though. well so the, so the optimal thing you should do assuming you have no information about me you, you know you don't know how i'm going to play you would just want to randomize at least in the beginning mm. um so you you know just roll a dice th and 33 percent of the time throw rock 33 percent throw paper etc um and so you would randomize and in response well it, it doesn't really matter what i do if i if i think that you're randomizing i can do whatever i want because you know and the point is is that but let's say I randomize back. If we do that, then we are breaking even against each other. And there's no other strategy that the other one can shift to in order to like cap. Oh, and Liv, I think you're muted real quick. Sorry about that. You there? Maybe you can just unmute. Weird. Yep. Sorry. Keep going. Can you hear me now? Yes, you can keep going. Oh, yeah. So that's that's an example. If we're both randomizing, that's that's an example of a Nash equilibrium where we're both like breaking even against each other. And you can keep doing that. You can keep doing the randomization. You're not going to be losing money each time you play. But if you then notice that I start throwing rock more often than, than the other two things, now you'd be making a mistake by continuing to do that perfect randomization because you would want to exploit my bad play by throwing paper a bit more often. Mm -hmm. So that's where we would then actually deviate from what's the classic, you know, game theory optimal play to, to exploit one another's bad mistakes. And that same kind of process happens in poker. So there's in every, in any given hand or, you know, scenario, um, there will be an optimal, a mathematically optimal solution where um, if I play that way, no one can exploit me. But because he, it, it, the, the optimal solutions in poker are very, very complex, no one can actually do that perfectly. So the game, now that, but now that we understand that this exists, now the game has shifted to everyone studying these game theory optimal solutions before they go and play. Um, and you do that using these, um, these, there's like different programs. There's one particular one called Pio Solver, um, which, you know, at least when I was playing professionally five years ago was the main popular one. And it would, the way it works is that it runs, you know, you, you, you basically enter a scenario into it and then you press play and it, it runs like what's called a Monte, Monte Carlo simulation. It runs like billions and billions of um, fictitious hands against itself where it then converges and finds these optimal solutions. And then it tells you, so then it shows you what they are. And then your job is to like basically memorize them and then emulate that when you go and play in, in the flesh. Mm. Um, so, it, so the point is, is that now the game is like an insanely mathematical thing. And it's, it's very different in terms of like, if you want to go and become the best, you have to go and sit and study these solutions. Um, and so it's now become a much a more, you know, before it was like a, a brain, a, a game of like right brain intuition vibes, uh, basically an art. Now it's a science. 
And, and, so, and that's what the science looks like. And so how about, because you brought up before, and, and by the way, I want to get into decision making as well. Um, but before we do that, like there's the social aspect of it as well, right? So you're, let's just pretend you're at the table with Phil Hellmuth and you know the calculations and in a way you've kind of, back to your rock, paper, scissors, maybe you notice his trends, but at the same time, he is super, an amazing poker player who's also doing counter uh, tactics, if you will, right? Defensive. How do you... <laughs> How do you become aware of that? But then at some point, if he's th- if he knows he's paying attention to you and he's throwing you off, does it become mute? You know, like just an even neutral <laughs> ground or like what's that science of the the competitiveness of it, the tactics of it? Right. Well, so that's where people can get bogged down in like mm. these like fancy, these fancy tactics and counter tactics and so on. Um, and. And in some ways, that's why I find the game nowadays a little bit less interesting than than before, because that was the sort of stuff that that sort of really ruled the roost. But because the mathematical plays are known to be so good, it's it, it's it's very you have to be very very certain that your fancy sort of exploitative tactics are correct in order to discount what you know the math says is an optimal un, unexploitable play. So you know if if I'm if I'm in a big hand and, you know, I, I'm get, I'm, I, Phil makes a bet and I'm getting offered really like juicy odds, you know, I, I, I'm getting seven to one and my hand is pretty solid. Um, I, I, I have to be unbelievably certain that his hand is better than mine in order to make this, you know, the, basically the math of the game theory says I have to call with like mm. 90% of the hands I could ever conceivably have. Um, so, but let's say my gut is screaming at me, but he's got it this time. He's, he's like, there's something about the way his body, body, uh, body language is that's telling me that he, he actually has a really super strong hand. Oh, I need to fold. I need to fold. I have to be so certain about my gut instinct on that to override what this, the math is saying. Um, so, you know, and, and that in itself is an art form, like to be able to like then essentially quantify your, your gut instincts when they disagree with what the math says. How do you um, do that, Liv? Like, it's just like, that's another <laughs> level of like social interaction with someone like Phil, who it's like, you're taking the mathematics out of it. It's like something about him. I don't know if it's his speech. I don't know if it's, if it's the way he's moving, mm-hmm. but then you're getting into reading people. Right. And then you're also right. thinking, well, he's probably trying to throw you off by doing this or that. Like, I don't, what do you call that? But what do you do about that? Well, so um, I guess what you what you're trying to do is you're trying to quantify a vibe. Uh, quantify a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> Just coin that term. I love that. Um, quantify your vibes. Uh, yeah. So you you know like again if, if if you want to be calling if the math is saying well, let's not do something quite as extreme let's say the math is saying you need to be calling seventy percent of the time um, uh, you know in in a vacuum essentially with no other information um, but then I get. Uh, the feeling that in this instance he has a really really strong hand mm-hmm. i have to then try and you know i it, it, it's hard to then sort of quantify okay out from a zero to a hundred how how confident am i with this particular thing but maybe what i would do is if so if 70 percent is like my my normal thing i might now upweight that to be like you know i'm only going to call uh i i need i need to I'm only going to call with uh, the top 80% of my hands as opposed to the top 70%. So, um, so up, up weight it that way and then go, okay, so out of my perceivable range, where does my current hand lie uh, of, of the range of cards I get? I mean, this is very, very technical stuff. I don't yeah. know if this is, you know, as the, the level of depth that the audience would be wanting. Um, but 
So how about this? Because I'd love to transition to conceivably do that. But it's it basically to, to boil it down. It's you, you need to try and quantify this vibe that you're getting um, because it's very very like people think of poker as like you know they've all seen the movies uh, rounders where oh mm-hmm. well he when he when he ha- when he's bluffing he, he you know when he when he has a good hand he picks up his Oreo and when he's bluffing he he splits the Oreo apart and eats it. Well, I can't remember what it exactly was. Um, or in in the James Bond film. Oh, there's blood coming out the corner of his eye. That means he's bluffing on this occasion. That just that so rarely happens um, where someone actually has such a a concise physical tell that matches up with when they're bluffing versus when they have a strong hand. More what what it is is that you just get a vibe for someone. You get a vibe for their their relative comfort level. Oh, they seem really uncomfortable here more than before, and it doesn't seem like it's fake uncomfortableness because of course people can bluff discomfort too like i've done that many times and that's you know that's where the like sort of fun acting comes into poker um so it, it, that is where the that's the last remaining part of the art of the game so is this is it, it's like pro- projecting vibes onto others and and receiving them back what's one of the best vibe stories you have right you've had a tremendous career you've played phil helmuth and so many more what's one of the maybe the best hands you've played whether you won or lost right just something that's memorable that you can walk people through because storytelling is huge right and so for the audience to help we can dive into the mathematics and the science behind it all day but just walk us through one of your favorite favorite moments playing poker what's that story (laughs) okay well i so i one that comes to mind and it's, it's not a happy one but it's 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 a funny one is um, it was in the World Series of Poker main event, and uh, I, can't, I can't remember the full details of the hand, but it was pretty deep. It was like day four, I think. So we were in the money, and the, for those who don't know, the, the World Series of Poker main event is like it's like the biggest, it's the biggest event of the year. It's a ten thousand dollar buy in, and it gets like seven thousand people. So first prize is often ten million dollars. It's huge, um, and the odds of you making the final table are very very small. Um, you know, the odds of you winning are like one in one seven, you know, one in uh, 7,000 if you're an average player. And if you're maybe the best player in the tournament, they might be one in 4,000, you know. So it's still statistically very unlikely that even the best player in the world, if they play the main event every year of their life, will even will, will ever win it. It's very, very unlikely. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a big lot- lottery, but it's a weighted lottery in favor of the pros. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was quite deep in this. And I got into a scenario, and I'm trying to remember exactly what happened. But it was against a fairly, uh, like, clearly quite a novice player. It was, it was like an older man. Um, I'd never seen him before. Um, I didn't have that much info on his playing style, other than, you know, he definitely wasn't a pro. And I ended up making... Um, yes, I'm, I the, the board... The board the, uh, three of the same card came out on the board and I had a very small pocket pair. So basically I had, I think, it, you know, the board was something like King, Queen, seven, seven, seven. And I had two threes in my hand. Um, and, oh no, was it? Uh, I, 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 don't, don't worry about the exact, what, what, the, what the board was. But the point is I had a, a very small full house um, and the board paired and he, I made a big bet on the river and he made a very large raise. And I looked at him and I was like, oh man, he seems so confident. He has a really, he's so pleased with his hand. He has a really, really, really good hand. But because because of the math of the situation, regardless, this is one of these situations where I really had, to, like the math was telling me I had to call. 
I just had to stick the rest of my chips in, even though even if I felt I was like quite often beat mathematically, I need to do it because my my certainty wasn't strong enough. But my gut was telling me, he's telling you he's really, really strong. He's so excited. He's like, he's really, really pleased. So in the end, I was like, you know what? I'm going to trust my gut. You know, this is the World Series main event is not a tournament you can play by just like being mathematical. This is one where you have to like, you know, there's a story here. You know, I wanted to go with the epic story of doing the heroic action. So I folded and he was like, good fold. And then turned his hand over and he had a flush, <laughs> which was worse than my hand. But in his mind was a really, really good hand. Yeah. And I was just like, I felt sick because I was like, oh my God. So my, my, that's the thing. So my instinct was actually correct. He had a, you know, in his mind, he had a really great hand, but because he was such an amateur, he didn't realize that actually his, it was a terrible hand to re-raise given the, the action in the board. And so, uh, and so that's where I should have just gone with the maths and I would have, I would have been fine. Um, even though my instinct was actually right, but because I hadn't correctly mentally modeled my opponent, uh, it ended up being the wrong decision. So uh, that that was that's one that sort of haunted me to this day. <laughs> that's a great one. And I love the story side of things because I love diving into the science. I love the specifics and the tactics. But at the same time, people really resonate and just make, builds a connection when you tell people the story. So that was fantastic. I also want to be very respectful of your time. I know we play, uh, planned for 45 minutes and this is flown by. We didn't even get to talk about decision making, but I'm sure you've got to go, right? I can do another 15 minutes. Perfect. Uh, whatever, whatever you want, yeah. Because decision-making, I was really hoping to get to this as well because I, I have a background in science, I have a background in, in, um, in psychology as well. And as I try to think through the art and science of decision-making, I've even become to the point where I've started interviewing experts and researchers on this topic. It's hard to find, at least in my opinion, some good people who are willing to talk about it. Now, poker players can talk about it all day, so I love talking about it. But last summer, I interviewed, um, I forget his name, he's based out of Australia, but it was just about applying decision-making to your life and how people haven't really thought through, you know, the decisions until the moment of, hey, where do I want to go to university? Where, you know, who do I want to marry? What job do I want? How much do I need to save? Retirement, you know, just like the big decisions in life, he starts to study, right? And then he starts to study, well, what should you be doing in those instances, right? And, and his research is fascinating. But before we get into that, just the topic of decision-making, I think is important because it can apply to everyone here in the audience, whether it's a small decision or the, the biggest decision of their life. So for you, what interests you in decision-making? And, and more specifically, what are some of the insights? What are some of the things that stand out to you that you can share with people in the audience that then they can go apply in their own lives? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the, was well, there's many different, different routes, uh, we can go down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just to sort of summarize a little bit on what I essentially hinted at in when we were talking about poker is don't be afraid to try and quantify your uncertainty because I, you know, if, if I, I would say if people have a bias, it's that they, it, it's, it's that they under quantify as opposed to over quantify, um, uh, and so by that, I mean, like, you know, you have an uncertain thing ahead of you. Some people go, oh, well, I don't know. So I guess it's 50-50. It's kind of like flipping a coin. It's like, no, you, you'll you have a degree of confidence. The question is, is like, what is that degree? So um, a good way to sort of instill that. So my, basically what poker players do is we think in probabilities all the time, um, even when it's not, at, you know, in the, at the poker table, if someone 
makes a big bet into me, I, I, I'd be like, okay, well, I think I'm about 60% confident they're, they're bluffing or I'm 30% of the time they have a better hand than me here. And obviously that takes a lot of experience to sort of develop actually well-calibrated estimations of probability. But the point is, is that you, you at least try to quantify it. Mm-hmm. And so many people don't even do that. And then this carries over into almost all sorts of things, you know, all sorts of things in life. Um, an example I always like to give is like, uh, you know, say you're running late to a, an important meeting and you can't find, can't find anywhere to park. Um, you, so now you have a decision, like uh, you could just park outside illegally on a, you know, in the UK, it's a double yellow line or whatever, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the symbol is in the US. Um, I should know that. So <laughs> <laughs> <All> good. <laughs> I always park legally just to, just to, to be clear. Um, so you, you know, you, so you have to make a decision. Do you gamble? Let's say if you if you get if you park illegally and you get a parking ticket, it's going to cost you a hundred bucks. Um, you have to make the decision: do you take the gamble or not? Um, and the way a lot of people will just think about it is, oh, well, I don't want to pay a hundred dollars. That's too expensive to pay to park. So, oh, I just dropped my phone. Am I still there? Yep, and I've done that plenty of times. Good. Um, and. So they'll think, oh, it's it's just a hundred bucks. But really, what you want to do is go. Well, okay, what's the probability? Let's say my meeting is an hour long. What's the probability that someone, will, you know, a, a warden will come along and give me a ticket during that time? It's definitely not a hundred percent, right? So mm-hmm. now you have to try and estimate the likelihood. And okay, it's difficult to to know exactly, but let's probably it's not any higher than twenty percent. So that's where you then do this really. The, I think the most important formula in in all certainly in decision making but i think just in life and it astonishes me that people don't learn this in school it's called expected value and all it is is simply um the the either the win or the win or the loss of the thing if it happens multiplied by the likelihood of the thing happening so in this case it would be a hundred bucks the cost of the ticket multiplied by whatever you think the probability of you getting the ticket is so let's say 20 percent. so that would be 20 bucks on expectation that you would pay um, every time you park illegally. Mm-hmm. So now you've got that information. It's like, do I, and then you weigh that off with like either, you know, missing or being late to your meeting. Would you pay 20 bucks to be on time to your meeting? If mm-hmm. yes, take the gamble. If no, then okay, keep looking for your parking space and maybe be late. Um, so that's that's a, a classic example of like uh, this expected value thinking that poker players do in all forms of their life. Um, and and more specifically, like just like quantifying your uncertainty. Now, like if, if someone asks me, you know, oh, are you going to come to my party in, in a week's time? I'll give them like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm like 80% to make it. Or yeah, I'm only like 30%. <laughs> um, and I, I, and I, I know like people always laugh when you do it, but I'm giving them much more. I'm, a, yeah. I'm being much more honest because people are always like, oh, yeah, maybe. Maybe it's just a bullshit word. It doesn't yeah. mean anything. It's just like, it's just flaky and non-committal. Um, and it shows that there's uncer- uncertainty, but it doesn't give any doesn't give any re- meaningful information to you, to the person who wants to know. Whereas if you say, oh, "Look, I'm actually I'm really unsure. It's, I'm, I'm I'm a fifty fifty. That's more useful than saying maybe. Um, or if you really think it's not that likely, but you're going to try. Well, actually, I'm only like twenty five percent. Like one in four, I'll make it. Um, and I think giving that level of granularity is it not only makes you more intellectually honest with yourself. Um, but it's just, it's more respectful to the other person because you're actually like putting a little bit of effort in to give it, you know, to quantify the uncertainty and they, you know, they're trying to make plans. So, um, that's, that's another really important thing. And yeah, go on. No, no, please go. Uh, And, and it, 
it's a really once you start doing this it's a habit that just builds up and up and up and now it's just i do it without thinking about it um and i i think you know i mean decision seems to work, work out fairly well for me um in life you know i'm sure there's some there's you know i've been very fortunate too but i do really think it's a it's a very important aspect of and a very neglected aspect of decision making um because you know we all life is is dealing with uncertainty so this is this is the scientific way of dealing with uncertainty, basically. I love um, and I mean, you can really d- dive into it more. If if people want to actually read about like better decision making, I think some of the best books are um, "Thinking in Bets" by Annie Duke, who yep. was one of the pros on you know who I told you taught me to play. Yep. Um, and "Super Forecasting" by Philip Tetlock. Um, yes. They both of those go into like the real sort of the technicalities of the stuff I just described and like how to be a, how to be a, a better thinker around uncertainty and making decisions about the future. I um, love that. And that actually reminds me, it might've been super forecasters, but it was something else actually. Um, I had the opportunity to write an article. They asked me to write for entrepreneur magazine and it was about super forecasters. Uh, I went down one route, one wrote one article, but I also was working with the editor in chief who interviewed, I don't know if it was Philip or someone else, but it's part of a group called good judgment. They want a, a DARPA, yes. yeah, yes. a U.S. government uh, kind of applied group, if you will. They won their DARPA challenge, and what they do is they get the best super forecasters. Now, that super, those aren't PhDs and things like that. They're just people that are very good who happen mm-hmm. to have the maybe the intuition or the the mental models to do it. And and one thing that um, he tested, he asked a question. The guy from Good Judgment asked the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Entrepreneur Magazine, like, how old do you think Gandhi is? Right. And what would be your guess, Liv, just for instance? Gandhi? Yeah. He's, he's not alive still. Well, uh, how, when, when was he born, rather, I guess, would be, was, the, the, oh, was the question. Oh, uh, oof. Um, ooh, <laughs> yeah. Question. Uh, I would guess he was born in 1905. Okay, cool. And so when he was asked that, so the editor-in-chief answered it like 1945 or something like that, right? Now, he was wrong. He was off by a ways. But what the lesson was, what he was learning from good judgment was, well, you don't always have to, if you don't know, you don't have to give the specifics, right? You, what you can do is broaden it, give a range, for instance. Give a range. Yes. yes. And so I just yes. thought that was so, you know, so maybe yeah. it was, if you don't really know, but maybe it's it's more than 50 years, right? But it's less than 200 years. Then just say right. that, right? Right, um, right, right. And actually, that makes me think of this. So there's this really, really cool website. I recommend everyone check out. Just in like, under, you know, future events, particularly major world events. Um, it's called metaculus.com, M-E-T-A-C-U-L-U-S.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's the site that many of those super forecasters use in order to, they have basically have forecasting competitions on major world events. So, um, you know, let's say, you know, I just saw this morning on Twitter, like monkeypox is now WHO are finally calling it uh, an emergency. Like finally, well done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't get me into them. Um, and, uh, so if you let's say you want to go and find out like actually what this the the wisdom of the crowds is and 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 by a crowd i mean like a very smart super forecasting crowd uh, around the like you know how many cases there will be of monkeypox at the end of the year go to that go to metaculus and search for monkeypox and it will show all the like questions that have been posed like how many cases will there be by 
December 31st, 2022. And then people will put, the, the forecasters will put their um, best estimates in. And because it's kind of gamified, people are incentivized to actually do their really best estimates, including their ranges. Um, and on aggregate, it's some of the best, like the, the performance of the predictions uh, of the people on Metaculus is far out seeds, sorry, exceeds um, many of the best, like, you know, famous pundits, uh, you know, or like experts that are often, you know, that will get called on to CNN and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're, they, they're incredibly accurate, um, or, you know, if you retrospectively looking at the um, how their predictions have performed. Uh, so, yeah, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you know, and it, and it has also all, all sorts of fun questions like, you know, if there's a singularity, what date will it come by? When will when will AGI first emerge and so on? Um, and it's always updating as well. People will go and update their uh, predictions based on if you know if new information comes out um like you know people updated their predictions on when agi will appear when when uh dali came out and then i think um a new language model came out recently and that like shifted every like shifted the 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 median prediction forward by 10 years Uh, so i now i think people think it's coming by like 2035 as opposed to 2045 which Uh is a really big update yeah um so yeah um i really recommend metaculus Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I'm writing that down right now. So for folks in the audience, go check that out as well. Oh my gosh, this is super exciting. And I'm just wondering, okay, so Metaculus, future events, just a lot of great insights there. Uh, Dale, I wish we could dive into that in the AI space as well, but I want to be respectful of your time. So speaking of future events, what's coming up next for you? So Liv, what's in your world? What are you doing now? What's coming up next that the audience, just if they want to learn more about you, that they can see and check you out? What are you going to be doing next in uh, maybe the second half of this year? Second half of this year, I am. Uh, I'm. I'm basically the thing that I am thinking about all the time is this kind of what I touched on a little bit earlier when talking about like uh, arms races and race to the bottom. Um, basically, the application of game theory to many of our world's crises. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether it's climate change. Uh, bio risk or, you know all the uh, many of these big problems are generated by the same game theoretic issues where it's kind of like everyone feels like because so i made this i made this video uh, on my youtube recently which if anyone listening hasn't seen please go watch it it's called the beauty wars um and it describes how on instagram everyone is now using these beauty filters on their pictures or their videos, um, because they, I mean, these beauty filters, they make you look really good, but they also make you hate your natural face then once you use them. Um, but because everyone thinks everyone else is using them and, uh, because it's such a ubiquitous, easy, cheap technology to use, it's like everyone has now descended into using them and it keeps, and, and, and whenever the next new one comes out, everyone adopts that, even though overall, everyone would have been better off if they had not done it in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it's an example of like game, like bad game theoretic incentives, making people do the short term, the short term win at the cost of the long term overall commons. Um, and if you then like t- zoom out, that applies to pretty much every major problem that we're seeing, um, you know, climate change each country is individually incentivized to burn its coal because coal is cheap and quick and easy way of, you know, booting up their economy, um, even though in the long run it will hurt them and everyone else. But because there's, they're all in this kind of competition, um, there's there's this, like, incentive gradient to make everyone do it. And 
there that this this is this like this overall thing of like short-term incentives at the long-term cost of of every of the bigger system uh has been sort of coined as this thing called moloch um that's the name of it and i i try to like bring this because it's it's kind of an abstract not very memeable concept um i tried to bring this moloch character to life in these in these videos um and so uh, it's been nearly a year now but i'm deep into working on episode two of that because i think it's such an important topic that if i do nothing else over the next few years but like get people to really viscerally understand this and why this is this is the thing we have to solve in order to actually make it as a civilization um then i will be happy i will have done my life's work so that's my current thing um and i'm thinking about doing a podcast and various other ideas uh in order to like get more people really aware of like the basically the underlying mathematical structure of why we're seeing the problems that we're seeing because it and it and it's it seems like the natural sort of intersection of all the stuff that I've done in my life because you know game theory poker um physics technology um uh and sort of social behaviors around uh game theoretic problems it's 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 a really really important thing um and there's no there's I don't know what the solution is yet and no one does that's the thing we need to collectively and we need the world to understand it so that we can like hive mind it and to to solve these problems. I love it. Well, that sounds like an amazing journey and I'm sure you'll get to that destination soon, Liv. Hey, Liv, this is <laughs> this has been amazing. This is fascinating. We could talk all day long. There's so much to go into, but I want to be respectful of your time and of course everyone in the audience as well. So folks, thank you so much for joining. If you haven't already, if you've been fascinated by Liv, go give Liv a follow. Follow her on YouTube and all the other platforms that she is. Check out her next poker event and just so much more. Folks, I want to thank you for joining us. Again, my name is Adam Soklich, also known as the best of live audio. I love talking with fascinating thinkers and doers just like you live. And in just a couple of weeks, I have Trung Fan coming up on the show and many, many more. So if you have any requests, please shoot me a DM. Uh, Liv, last question. Is there, if you had a dream conversation with one or two more people, who would that be in the, in the whole world right now? Who would you love to have a co- good conversation with? Myself? Yeah. Uh, or for you? Um, for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would love to talk to. Honestly, it sounds dark, but I would love to have like actually spoken to people like Stalin and Hitler and all the real like evil dark triad people. You know, people with the dark triad personalities who did terrible things in the world. I would love to speak to them to understand why, mm. what what went wrong that made them the way they are mm-hmm. um because it's these dark triad personality issues uh, that are in many ways sort of to blame for this moloch issue that we then see because it's like everyone doing the short-term thing and not being able to see the bigger picture mm-hmm. um and i that yeah <laughs> it's not a, it's not it's probably not the answer you were looking for but honestly that's what i would want to do absolutely it's understanding <laughs> no it's understanding people i absolutely love that and i yeah. love talking with people as well so Liv, this has been fantastic <laughs> have you had fun by the way has this been good Oh, it's been awesome. Really awesome. great conversation. Thank you. Good, good, good. All right, folks. Well, again, check out Liv. Give her a follow. Great, great stuff that you're doing. And I'm so excited that we've had this chance to talk, Liv. So we will talk again soon. All right? All right. Thank you, Adam. All right. Thanks, Liv. Thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of the day. Take care. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye. This is the best podcast. 
BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.